0: Let us pray. O Sovereign Lord, our help is found in Your name. You are always good and we trust You. We exalt You for all Your majestic works, for You are the God who delivered Israel from Egypt through the Passover Lamb, rescuing them through the waters of the Red Sea. You thundered at Sinai as You gave the stone tablets of Your law to Your servant Moses. You established the tabernacle, the priesthood, the sacrifices and all these things in order to point us to your son, our great high priest and king, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has rescued us from the world, the flesh and the devil, who has saved us from your wrath and brought us out of Satan's kingdom of darkness into the glorious kingdom of light, where we know your favor. Deliver us, Lord, today. May we not be overcome by the plague you have sent across many lands. May we not give in to darkness and despair. May we rejoice in your forgiveness. May we rest in your sovereign rule. For you are the maker of heaven and earth, the one who declares the end from the beginning, the one who has decreed whatsoever comes to pass, all for your own glory and for the good of your people. Shine your light upon us that we may be comforted in your love. Give us truth and wisdom to live by, that we may truly live, that we may live for your honor and glory. Grant us your peace with one another and with you. Father, protect us from all manner of evil and give us grace. All this we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the praise of your glorious name, the one in whom our help is found. Amen. Our lesson of the day is from James, the third chapter, beginning in verse 12, again, hear the word of God. Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, it is a great comfort and joy to be in the presence of your people today, especially in a time like this. Father, we pray that you would give us the comfort of being in your presence, that you would give us your gifts today, that you would speak words of truth and wisdom to us now, words for us to live by. Father, we pray that you would strengthen us. We pray that you would give us help. Father, we pray that you would guide us in the right way. Father, we pray that your spirit would be at work in us to bear his fruit, that we might walk faithfully with you. Father, I pray that you would give us a spirit of service, that we might serve one another, a spirit of boldness. Father, I pray that you would help us to run to the fight. Father, we pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. A lot has indeed changed over the last week. Uh, we have seen a virus from China start to spread. We have seen the stock market tank. Uh, we have seen the president shut down travel and declare a state of emergency. It's been a busy week, uh, a week quite unlike any I've seen in a long time, perhaps a week very different than any in any of our lifetimes. Uh, I believe that in the midst of these kinds of storms, when panic is in the air, when chaos reigns, the church has an opportunity to shine as only she can do, as only the people of God can do. Uh, certainly, I'm concerned, I know we all are concerned, about the damage that the coronavirus has done and will do to people. Many have died, perhaps many more will, and that is tragic, and we want to be smart to do what we can to protect ourselves and to protect uh, others out of a love for them, a neighborly love. Uh, all of these things are wise. Uh, it's not a, showing a lack of faith to take precautions to do such things. Uh, shows wisdom. But in times like these, times of trouble, uh, in times of darkness, this is where the light of the church must shine the brightest. Uh, and this is true because we have a confidence no one else has. We have a love in our lives others don't have. We know nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We know the coronavirus cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We know a stock market tumble cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We know not even death can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so we can face fearful things fearlessly We can celebrate and rejoice even when the land is in agony, not because we're indifferent to that suffering, not at all. You know, we're called to enter into that suffering in all kinds of ways. But we can have joy. We can have peace. We can celebrate even in a time like this because we know the present suffering is nothing compared to the glory that is to be revealed. The present suffering is nothing compared to the coming glory. We know how the story ends. We can count our coronavirus trials as joy. That's what James would tell us. Count your trials joy. We can celebrate the supper today with the same joy as always. Maybe in a little more sanitized form. Yes, certainly. But we can celebrate it with the same joy because we're still communing with Christ and with one another in the bread and in the wine. This is our hope. This is our confidence as Christians. And this is because we know that coronavirus is not the real enemy. The real enemy ultimately is sin. What we have to deal with, what we have to contend with is not ultimately corona, but it's sin. It's sin that threatens to destroy us more than anything else. While there's no cure for corona as of now, there is a cure for sin. This is the good news. There is a cure for sin found in the blood of Christ. The bread and wine we share today are a sign of this gospel, this good news, that God has provided an antidote to sin, a remedy for sin. So whether we live or die, we can live and die to the Lord, to his glory, in the security of his love, knowing he cares for us. Christ is always the remedy. And Christ not only forgives our sins, great though they may be, Christ also transforms us, he matures us, he glorifies us. And there is our hope. We've seen throughout the book of James, it's really a call to maturation. It's a call to mature, to mature in the faith, to mature in wisdom, to mature in Christ-likeness. You know, the reality is the wicked mature as well. The wicked mature, so to speak, also. They make progress down the path of folly. They grow in their pseudo-wisdom. Even as we seek to grow to become more like Christ, they Grow, if you could say that, uh, becoming more and more like Satan. As the righteous, we want to be like trees planted by streams of living water. Growing and producing righteous fruit. We want to walk in paths of righteousness, progressing and maturing in true wisdom. Continually fine-tuning our obedience to God more and more as life unfolds. Till we reach the full and final glory of Christ likeness. These are the two paths James gives to us. These are the two paths Jesus gave to us. These are the two paths Solomon gave to us. They're the two paths all of God's Word puts before us. One leading to death, the other leading to life. Perhaps it is fitting that we have to deal with a virus that makes us confront our own mortality during the season of Lent. In a way, this is what Lent is all about. Considering our own mortality, our weakness a weakness and a mortality that arise from our sin. The season of Lent forces us to ask again and again these questions. What am I living for? What will my legacy be? What makes my life count? But it's interesting, this passage we're studying here in James 3 really raises all the same issues. It too is very fitting for the season of Lent. Indeed, I would say this message, this passage here in the middle of James, James 3 uh, 12 to 18, really summarizes the message of the whole book. And in doing so it really gives us insight in what the season of Lent is all about. It's very fitting for the season. As it sums up the message of the latter, it shows us these two paths. It shows us what we ought to be living for. What life ought to look like. It shows us what the good life really looks like. Not in the American dream kind of sense, but in the godly sense. The kind of life God calls us to. Now, last week we looked at this passage as it contrasts heavenly wisdom with demonic wisdom, the wisdom that comes from below with the wisdom that comes down from above. We looked at the heavenly wisdom last week. Today we're going to look at the demonic wisdom. We're going to look at this wisdom that comes from below, worldly wisdom or satanic wisdom. And the first thing to understand is there really is such a thing as worldly wisdom. It is folly, it is foolishness, but it has camouflaged itself as wisdom to deceive the unwitting. It is folly, all dressed up and disguised as wisdom, in order to deceive those who are willing to be deceived. And you really see the origin of this worldly wisdom in Genesis chapter 3 with the words of Satan and with the actions of Adam and Eve. Had Adam and Eve waited to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God would have eventually given them the green light. Satan presents them with this temptation to eat of the one tree God has forbidden to them. He presents them with that temptation. Had they waited, had they resisted that temptation, eventually God would have given them the green light to eat of that tree. It's not that it was going to be off limits forever. And when they ate of that tree, had they done so in righteousness with God's permission... They would have been granted heavenly wisdom. They would have been promoted to a higher, more glorious level of kingship. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All throughout scripture, kingly rule is described in terms of knowing or judging good and evil. That tree represented royalty. It represented glory. It represented maturity. It represented kingship. God would have given them, given it to them when the time was right. But what happened? We see demonic wisdom on display. This demonic wisdom, this counterfeit wisdom offered by Satan in the garden is a kind of shortcut. It's a quick fix. Satan says, you can have wisdom, you can have this wisdom, and you can have it now. It's a get-wise-quick scheme. All the wisdom, none of the waiting. That's Satan's promise. No suffering, no long obedience in the same direction. It can all be yours right now with one mind. And Satan is always making these kinds of promises. Satan promises get-rich-quick schemes as well. Uh, other follies that would eliminate the need for patience and perseverance, that would do away with the need for work and for obedience. Now, last week we saw James offers a seven-fold description of the heavenly wisdom, and we unpacked that. Well, we also find in this passage he gives a roughly seven-fold description of demonic wisdom. And so just as last week we walked through the seven aspects of the wisdom that comes from above, so this week we're going to walk through the seven aspects of wisdom that comes from below, and then we'll look at the results of this wisdom. So the seven attributes of this pseudo-wisdom, this satanic wisdom, the seven attributes are found in verses 14 and 15. The results are then found in verse 16. And I want you to notice here, James is engaging in what we call casuistry. Uh, That is, he is paying careful attention to moral questions. He's giving detailed moral guidance, detailed ethical guidance. We don't have much casuistry in the church today. Uh, but we need it. We actually need just this kind of thing. Uh, today in the church, the emphasis tends to be more on the therapeutic than the moral. That is, there's more emphasis on feeling good than being good. Uh, but C.S. Lewis somewhere said, I don't know if God wants us to be happy right now or not. I don't know if God wants us to be happy right at the moment, but I know for certain he wants us to be mature. And in a sense, that's what James is telling us here. So look at this list. First, he mentions in verse 14, envy, uh, what he calls bitter envy. Now, we saw last week that wisdom is social. Uh, Wisdom has to do with how we relate to one another, and wisdom produces peace. It produces social harmony. Wisdom brings us together in a community where each member can contribute to the well-being of the whole, where, where each member can serve the common good, the good of the whole community. Well, Satan's anti-wisdom, as you might expect, is anti-social. It destroys social peace. It rips up the fabric of community. Envy is an incredibly destructive sin. Envy, of course, is not just wanting what another has for yourself. That's coveting. We've got another word for that, coveting. But envy says, if I can't have it, I don't want you to have it either. Envy is a form of hatred. We're called the love neighbor. Envy is a form of hatred towards neighbor. And that's why the envious are so prone to violence. You see this link between envy and violence throughout scripture. Envy has to do with desire. Envy is desiring what someone else has for yourself. It is hating the beauty or the success or the wealth that another has. Or even more than that, it's hating the successful, hating the beautiful, hating the wealthy because of their beauty, their success their wealth. And so when envy is acted upon, when those envious desires turn into actions, it can result in theft, it can result in assault, it can result in murder. Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery because the scripture tells us they were moved by envy. They figured if they couldn't have Joseph's position, they didn't want him to have it anymore either. When the Apostle Paul attracted a large Following, multitudes of Jews were coming after Paul. He was persecuted by unbelieving Jews out of envy. Uh, the Tanya Harding story is the classic example. Kids, you can ask your parents about this. Well, of course, the parents—probably not even all the parents—know the story. And I guess it's kind of dating myself here. But the Tanya Harding story is the classic example of this. Harding was a uh, female figure skater. Uh, in the 1990s and she kept getting beaten by her rival Nancy Kerrigan and so finally out of envy quite obviously she hired a hitman to break Kerrigan's legs that's how she was you know, if I can't win I don't want her to win either envy has that element of maliciousness to it but envy is not just a relational sin in the sense of something we can experience between individuals it can also be a political and economic sin and this is so important Whenever politicians start dangling something that they say will be free out in front of you, they are appealing to your envy, to your innate envy. Because the reality is, nothing is free. So to call it free is deceptive. But why does that work? Why do we fall for it? Well, we fall for it because we are envy. envy. You know, if you can't take what someone else has in your own strength, perhaps you can get the government to do, do it for you many politicians prey upon envy by promising to soak the rich and pass the benefits along to everybody else. So I saw a survey not too long ago. 80% of Americans want taxes raised on millionaires. 80% of Americans. Now, why is this? Why? why? Is it because the government needs more money? Well, I don't think that's it. It's, it's not that the government has this great track record of being such good stewards of the money they collect. No, what is it? Perhaps it's the expectation that they will take some of that money from millionaires and distribute it to you. They'll give it to you. But see, that, that, that's, that's envy. Now we commonly call that socialism. That's, that's the name we commonly give that. Uh, Winston Churchill described socialism as the politics of envy. He called uh, socialism the gospel of envy. There are these promises made that appeal to our envious hearts. It's not so much about raising up the poor even as it is bringing down the rich. The successful will become objects of resentment. Uh, Roger Scruton puts it this way, It is a human weakness to believe that you are poor because others are rich and that you are suffering because they are not. This attitude called resentment by Nietzsche explains many peculiarities of the modern world. Uh, Scruton goes on, he says, It is easy to feel resentment towards the successful and easy to believe that by depriving them of their advantages, we will benefit the remainder. That way we can turn a blind eye to our real motive, which is not compassion, but resentment. Not creation, but destruction. Uh, Thomas Sowell puts it this way, When people are presented with the alternatives of hating themselves for their failures or hating others for their success, they seldom choose to hate themselves. They seldom choose to say, well, maybe, maybe I need to do things differently. Maybe I should repent or try something else out. Instead, they grow in resentment towards those who have been successful. Envy, then, you could say, is what drives class warfare. And again, politicians love to stoke this kind of envy, which is easy to do because envy is so pervasive in the human heart. Now, of course, it's cloaked as a virtue. This is where... The, the, the satanic deception comes in, but it is counterfeit wisdom. It's made to look good, to look appealing, to look logical. The economics of envy is certainly part of what James seems to have in mind here. I mean, we, we don't know all the details of the context James is addressing, But it seems he is addressing a kind of class warfare that is perhaps motivated by envy because his letter has so much to say about the rich and the poor. He's going to have some pretty harsh words to say about the rich later on in chapter 5. So it's not as though they get off the hook. But those who are envious of the rich, those who are given over to envy, James is showing them that is a kind of satanic wisdom. Envy gives rise to the politics of resentment. It demonizes success. It is the politics of revenge. Again, I can't have your wealth all to myself. I can't have your success all to myself. So I will vote for politicians who will take your wealth and your success away. Envy makes the 1% the enemy. Envy demonizes the rich. Instead of celebrating the success of others, it turns their success into a cause for grievance. Anytime you hear, again, politicians dangling that word free out in front of us. Anytime you hear a lot of talk about privilege... Uh, as a as a source of grievance, that is the language of envy. Because see, envy treats wealth as a zero sum game. If you are successful, it must have come at my expense. But that assumes a static world where there is no growth. It assumes that God is ultimately stingy instead of continually generous. So we could say socialism is a, is a form of institutionalized envy. Envy expressed through majority vote, perhaps. It is the politics of envy. But, you know, envy explains a lot of other things in our society as well. Envy explains why we have such a litigious society, why we're constantly taking one another to court. So many of the decisions that have been made over the coronavirus are made not just in the interest of human safety, but in the interest of not wanting to get sued. We live in a kind of society where people will sue for most anything and everything because it's seen as an opportunity to devour what another has. Envy goes hand in hand with a victim mentality. Now, there are obviously real victims, but there's also such a thing as a victim mentality where somebody thinks of themselves as a victim when really they're not. This is driven by envy. Envy leads us to coddle ourselves and condemn others. Envy bites and devours. The envious tear others down to get ahead. Envy is a vicious game of one-upsmanship. And envy can seep down into every area of our lives. Envy drives egalitarianism which not only seeks to level out distinctions between rich and poor, but between male and female. We live in a culture that is saturated with envy. And again, it can look wise, but in reality it's foolish. It looks wise the way the fruit looked wise to eat. It creates bitterness, as James tells us here. It wrecks relationships and societies. Envy changes society, but in the wrong way. You know, James is writing to people who want to change their world. They want to change their society. They want to bring cultural and civilizational transformation. But envy will not bring the right kind of transformation. Envy is so central to this pseudo-wisdom James is describing. He actually mentions it twice in verse 14, and then it appears again in verse 16. You must guard yourself against it. Have you ever seen somebody's picture You know, say on social media or something like that, you've seen a picture of somebody's happy family, or maybe you see a picture of their trip to Disney, or you see someone's engagement announcement or birth announcement, and you feel this mix of sadness and anger. That resentment, that is envy. It is foolish. It is destructive. It is a form of hatred for the one God has blessed. It's hatred of neighbor. It's foolish. Second aspect of this satanic wisdom that James mentions in verse 14 is self-seeking. Now, this could also be translated as selfish ambition. The worldly wise are selfish. They are self-seeking. They are led by selfish ambition. This is the way of the world. Note that ambition itself is not the problem. Ambition... Defined as the drive to do your best, to be your best, to succeed in something, uh, a desire to make something of yourself. All of that is good. That that can be good in itself. Uh, it flows out of the dominion mandate If a man, say, desires a promotion at work and he puts forth effort to get it so he can better provide for his family. That's good. That, there's a good, healthy ambition there. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, if a man desires to be a bishop, he desires a good work. Now, Paul there says he desires a good work. He's not just wanting the office for the sake of status. He's desiring the work that comes with it. But that kind of ambition, to be a servant and a leader in God's church, is a good ambition. Wanting to do the work of the ministry is a good and holy ambition. Ambition is wise. A wise person will be ambitious, he'll be seeking to continually expand his realm of dominion. So that's the ambition's good. But put the word selfish in front of it, selfish ambition, that is foolish. Selfish ambition is self-seeking, it centers on the self, it basically makes a religion of the self. The worship of the self, of course, has always been a problem going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Uh, when Adam put himself and he put herself on the throne and in the judgment seat, in a sense exalting themselves, grasping higher honors and positions for themselves, but that's what we do a lot in our lives. Much of history is about men and women doing this. The whole history of philosophy, the whole history of secular philosophy is about man making himself the measure of all things. Man's reason, man's experience, man's feelings, depending on what the fashion of the day is, man putting himself at the center of all things, making himself the measure of all things through his reason and experience, his emotion. Now a lot of times in history this has been cloaked uh, in some other kind of garb, uh, but today the worship of the self, this kind of self-seeking, is out in the open. It's barely even disguised anymore, it's out there in the open and it is continually applauded. And so we have what's called the self-help industry, which is a $10 billion per year industry, and it's growing dramatically, one of the fastest growing segments in the economy. For many, self-help is a religion for the self and of the self. You're taught to look out for yourself, to practice self-care as an end in itself, to please the self, to serve the self, to approve of the self. When innocent-sounding messages like believe in yourself or love yourself, when those kinds of messages get secularized, when they're cut off from a creational framework, a, a theological framework within which they, they, they might make good sense, they actually become idolatrous. Believing in yourself turns the self into a kind of idol. Loving yourself actually drives out other loves that ought to be at the heart of our lives as well. We find this idolatry of the self in the so-called power of positive thinking movement that says, I can do anything, I can be anything. Or that says, you are enough, you do you. You find these messages everywhere. You go on the internet, there are countless memes with these kinds of messages that are meant to pump us up and, and, and fill us with something. What are they filling us with? They're just filling us with more of ourselves. The self becomes its own creator, its own definer, its own lawgiver, its own judge, its own God. The meaning of life is what you make it to be. That really is the American religion today. You can do whatever you want. You can make up your own values. You can make up your own code to live by. You are the author of your own story. You are your own master. You answer to nobody but yourself. Life is what you make of it, and it's up to you to do it. I think you even see this obsession with the self and things like personality tests. You can't even open up Facebook without being confronted with all these personality tests. I'm not saying that they're not helpful in any way whatsoever. They might be very interesting in ways that we can come to know something useful about ourselves. But I've also seen those tests used in ways that are not so healthy where you take a little test and it tells you what kind of person you are and the next thing you know, that's become an excuse for not doing something requires of me. I don't have to do X, Y, and Z that God is calling me to because I'm more of an ABC kind of person. And it becomes an excuse. My Enneagram number replaces the Ten Commandments as my standard of living. Self is put in the place of God. Earthly wisdom is put in the place of God's wisdom. Remember what Jesus said about the self? What did Jesus say about the self? He said to deny the self. That's a pretty different message. That's a different kind of wisdom. And yes, this is the wisdom of the cross versus the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of Jesus versus the wisdom of the self. The wisdom of Christ's kingdom versus the wisdom of the world's kingdom or your own little kingdom. The thing is, when we turn ourselves into gods, the self doesn't make a very good God. And so beneath all of that believe-in-yourself bravado is really a deep insecurity and a deep anxiety, a sense of guilt and shame and fear, feelings of unworthiness. Because no matter how much we tell ourselves, I am enough, or I can be whatever I want to be, deep down we know it's not true. And that is why the religion of the self can lead to harming of the self or the numbing of the self through drugs and alcohol. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Worldly wisdom says that if you lay your life down, you will lose yourself. You'll become less of yourself. Jesus says, no, if you lay your life down, you will find yourself. You will become your true self. Well, third, James mentions boasting. We can go a little faster now. James mentions boasting. Uh, he says, do not boast, because boasting is a sign that you are in the grip of the wisdom that comes from below. James here is warning us against arrogance. Against being wise in our own eyes is how Proverbs describes it. The fool is wise in his own eyes. Proverbs is filled with warnings about this kind of arrogance, this kind of boasting, and maybe especially young men who are given over to this kind of boasting. And that's why you have so many warnings about it in the book of Proverbs, which is addressed to young men. The problem is the prideful person thinks he already knows best. And so you cannot teach a boaster... You cannot correct a a, a proud person. It is obvious boasting gets in the way of true wisdom. Pride is nothing to be proud of. Paul tells us we're to make a sober estimate of ourselves. Pride just reveals your own folly. Indeed, pride is reveling in your own folly. Pride is boasting in what ought to bring you shame. Fourth, James adds to the list, false to the truth. This is an interesting one, and we might be curious to to, to ponder how this might have fit into James' context when he originally wrote. I think it's interesting to consider how every one of these aspects of the false wisdom that James describes really can be traced back to Genesis chapter 3. Certainly that's the case here. It's what Paul, the apostle, calls exchanging the truth for a lie. It's lying about God's truth. The serpent asked, has God really said, and then he lied about God's word. He became a false teacher, a false prophet. The mark of worldly wisdom is being false to scripture, lying about scripture, questioning and lying about what God has said, twisting what God has said. You are false to the truth. And that is why you can have supposed churches that have really become synagogues of Satan. It may still say Methodist or Presbyterian or Christian church out front, but it is no such thing because it is full of Satan's wisdom rather than God's wisdom. It's not a place that preaches God's word. It's not a place where God's word is heard anymore. And what they have done is they have substituted their own lies for God's truth. They have disguised it. So it's not always obvious, but they're being false to the truth. They are twisting God's word. They are questioning God's word. It is satanic. Now in our day, it's very obvious where this especially happens is on sexual issues. People try to make the Bible say the opposite of what it says. or something very different from what it actually says about marriage, or about manhood and womanhood, or about homosexuality. This is where people are especially false to the truth. Being false to the truth means trying to keep the name Christian while filling it with content that isn't Christian at all, as if you could invent a religion and invent a God for yourself and then slap the Christian label on it and and present it as if that were the Christian faith. Whenever somebody is confronted with some teaching of Scripture and they say, but I don't want to believe in a God who's like that, or I can never imagine God does this. That's being false to the truth. You're putting your own idol in place of the true God. It may seem wise. In fact, in churches where this happens, you know, that, that's the, that's the, the appeal. Oh, if we will just make adjustments to the Christian message, if we'll just tinker with this or that teaching of God's work, we can draw more people in. We won't have to be at odds with the scientists or with the celebrities of the day or with the politicians. Guess what? You can be a Christian and still be cool. It looks so wise, it's, it's so attractive, but it is a lie, it is really foolish. Then in verse 15, James groups together three aspects of this pseudo-wisdom. He says it is earthly, it is sensual, it is demonic. And it is interesting how this list corresponds to the traditional three-fold list of the church's enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Earthly, sensual, demonic, the world, the flesh, and the devil. These things go together. Earthly here means earthbound. It means constrained by the perspective of the here and now. We might describe somebody as a materialist, for example. uh, they're, They're so consumed with the earthly perspective. They're only living for the present moment. Treating this life as all there is. That is worldliness. It's buying into the evil world system, the fallen world system, that normalizes sin. The essence of worldliness is treating sin as normal as inevitable, as just the way things are. So sin no longer disgusts us or alarms us in any kind of way. It's just what happens. Of course people live together before they get married. That's just what you do, right? That's earthly wisdom, demonic wisdom. Sensual. The term here suggests living by feelings and emotion and uh, immediate gratification rather than wise judgment that comes from God's spirit. More than that, sensual means living for pleasure. This is the opposite of the purity that we looked at last week, uh, where James identifies purity with heavenly wisdom. Here you have sensuality. The sensual person is controlled by his desires, by his feelings. He lacks self-control. He lives in the flesh. His flesh dominates him. Paul says you either walk in the flesh or walk in the spirit. The sensual man is unspiritual. He is fleshly. The term is especially apt to describe a life given over to sexual sin of any sort. The sensual person is not on a quest for truth. He's not on a quest for real wisdom. He's on a quest for the next experience, the next pleasure, the next form of self-gratification. And it is, James is showing us, utter folly. It ends in ruin. But again, sensuality is presented to us in our culture as the essence of wisdom. The sexual revolution presented sensuality as the way of freedom. That it would be so liberating to cast off these sexual restraints. It looked wise. But its true nature was being camouflaged. Because it's not wise at all. It ends in addiction. It ends in 60 million murdered babies. It ends in broken hearts and broken homes. It ends in disease and in loneliness. Listen to Oscar Wilde, a, a man who gave himself over to a life of, of, of sensuality for sure. Listen to how he describes this, reflecting on it. He must say, he says, I must say to myself that I ruined myself, and that nobody, great or small, can be ruined except by his own hand. Terrible as what the world did to me, what I did to myself was far more terrible still. I let myself be lured into long spells of senseless and sensual ease. And Wilde realizes at the end of it all, this has destroyed me. Sensuality looked so good and felt so good in the moment, but it has destroyed me. True wisdom will practice purity sexual self control uh, you cannot grow in wisdom without harnessing and directing your sexual desires in a godly way the sensual man has no means of resisting temptation whereas the pure man the truly wise man does he can navigate these dangers the obstacle course of temptation we are continually confronted with he's got a he's got a, he knows how to direct his sexual desires and his sexual energy Sensuality is foolishness. We're surrounded by it, but it's the way of ruin. And finally, demonic. This false wisdom comes from below, not from above. This is kind of a summarizing term. But I think James wants us to understand that Satan himself is involved in propagating this false wisdom. It doesn't just happen. These false worldviews, these false philosophies, these false religions that have so much purchase on the world are inspired by Satan. It's what Paul says. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against rulers of darkness, spiritual hosts of darkness. Satan makes his wisdom look very alluring. He can disguise himself as an angel of light. It's very tempting to us in that way. Satan doesn't come knock on your door and say, "Hi, I'm from the pits of hell, and I'm here to drag you down with me." No, he makes that demonic wisdom look heavenly. He makes what is evil look good, what is ugly look beautiful. That was his strategy in the garden. It is his strategy with us to deceive us, to trap us, to lure us to our own death. He is the father of lies. He has been a murderer from the beginning. Do not fall for his counterfeit wisdom. And what happens when we do? Well, verse 16 tells us envy, pops up again, selfishness, again, this centering on the self, and other forms of evil are described here. In the selfishness and other forms of worldly demonic wisdom, James tells us, lead to confusion and every kind of evil deed. What's the result? Confusion and every other kind of wickedness. It all started with Adam and Eve because they fell for the demonic wisdom. They opened up a Pandora's box of evils. But when we fall for the demonic wisdom, we open up a Pandora's box of evils in our own lives and in the world around us as well. When we fall for Satan's lies, it destroys us. It leads to confusion and disorder in our lives and in our society. Why is there so much confusion in social life today, even apart from the coronavirus? Situation we're now facing. Even before this, we've been surrounded by confusion and by disorder. Why is there this confusion? This confusion about men and women. Confusion about work. Confusion about community. Confusion about economics. Confusion about so much of life. Our culture is confused because we have lost God's wisdom. We have exchanged the true wisdom that comes from above for wisdom that comes from below we have exchanged truth for lies, glory for shame, so we have exchanged peace for anxiety, love for hatred, and life for death. This is what is happening. It's all a bad deal. All the way around, it's a bad deal. James gives us a different way. He shows us where this demonic wisdom leads, where that path will take us, but he also shows us where this heavenly road, this heavenly wisdom will take us, the way of true wisdom And so he closes this section. We've looked at this proverb before, but I want to come back to it again. Verse 18. How does he close out this section? He says, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by the one who makes peace. Who is the one who makes peace? Ultimately, it is Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the Man of Peace, who has made peace for us through his cross. How did he make this peace for us? By dying for us. And then when he was buried in the ground, he was sowing a seed of peace. And now because he was sown in the ground, we are his harvest of righteousness. We are the fruit of his work. The body, his body was sown in the ground that he might reap us as his harvest. That we might become sons of righteousness and sons of peace. Look, we face a very uncertain future. Everybody's saying, there's so much uncertainty. Who knows what's going to happen? Fear and panic gripping people. The reality is, there's no uncertainty at all for us. There's nothing uncertain at all about our future. Oh, sure, maybe what's going to happen tomorrow, or in the next week, or in the next three weeks. James actually talks about that in chapter 4, how we don't know what's going to happen next. But we can live with that kind of uncertainty because we have a greater certainty. There is really no uncertainty in our future at all. We know exactly what is coming. A harvest of righteousness. We know this harvest of righteousness will come, will be reaped, because a seed of peace was sown in the ground when Jesus was buried. This harvest of righteousness is coming. A future of peace and glory is ours because Jesus Christ is the true wisdom that has come down from above. He is the Father's gift to us. He has given himself to us. This is our future, the harvest of righteousness. Let's pray together. Father, we know that our lives are a battle of spirit versus flesh. Your Holy Spirit waging war against our ungodly desires. We know that our lives are a battleground of wisdom versus folly. We know that our lives are a battleground of denying the self versus living for the self. Oh, Father, especially in times like these, give us your wisdom. Help us not to live for ourselves, for we know that is a dead end. It's a road that leads to death. Help us to live for you, for your glory, for the good of our neighbors. Father, give us the true wisdom that comes from your spirit. May the works of the flesh not be manifest in our lives, but may the fruit of the Spirit be clear for all to see. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.